Yeah. Anyways, I, I, let's talk about the housing bubble and, and China as well, because I think we're going to see like this huge resurgence of onshoring really? in, in the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. there's, there's uh, so we can talk about that. We're a little early on the trend, but let's be early. Absolutely. You know? I, I agree. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Two Beers with Charles. I feel like I'm going to name this our podcast, Charles, because we talk we do this, you know, once a month. It's similar to what you and Gordon do. And I really should reach out to Gordon, too, because anybody that hasn't checked out Gordon T. Long's podcast, he does them on YouTube. You can subscribe. And Charles, at least once a month, him and Charles have a discussion. The last one was really good. Um, it, it really talked about uh, financialization and covered a lot of topics um and you, you guys always cover a lot of topics um but uh charles is the writer uh, of and blogger um he's the owner of of minds.com you may have seen charles on the max kaiser report and multiple other media outlets he's a writer for peak Pro prosperity um my good friend author renaissance man um we love having these conversations and now we start doing them over beers so I guess, Charles, the proper thing that we should do is start by saying, what beer are we drinking? That's right, Drew. And, of course, um, uh, tipping our hat to the original two beers with Steve Patterson, yes. who uh, inspired us. Yes. Um, what I'm drinking uh, this afternoon um, is Indica Pale Ale from Lost Coast Brewery in Eureka, California, which is pretty well known as uh, marijuana capital of <laughs> Mendocino County. <laughs> probably why it's called Indica IPA. It probably gives you a nice body buzz. <laughs> and it um, is also home to um, Humboldt State uh, University, one of the California state universities with a, uh, with a really terrific forestry program and, and some other great departments. And so this Lost Coast Brewery is right on one of the main drags in town. Um, I really favor it. It's actually owned and, and operated by two uh, women who got into beer making. And so the last time we went camping in Northern California, my wife and I stopped there for a course of brew and some food. And then um, I picked up a case of this, which is um, – I don't think it's widely available unless you, you know, go to the brewery. So um, I'm really enjoying it. So let's hear about your beer. My beer is also a local beer, but I'm in Ohio. So I am um, – there's lots of good microbrews in Columbus, Ohio, which is definitely a good good sign. I mean, they're they're everywhere, and I think it's a good good thing we've deregulated alcohol manufacturing. But anyways, um, it is uh, Brass Knuckles American Pale Ale. Uh, it is by my friends Four String um, Four String Brewery. So if you go to fourstringbrewing.com, you can't get it really anywhere. I don't, I'm not sure if they really uh, have their beer distributing outside of Columbus yet. I really enjoy their beers. They have a wide variety, but uh, yes, so this is my local brew today, sir. Fantastic. It sounds, Brass Knuckles makes it sound like it might be up there in the, you know, seven, eight, nine percent range. You would like to think so, but um, I wish it was, but it's not as strong as the last beer I had. This one's only 5.6. So it's it's no um I mean it's definitely stronger than like your your normal crappy American beer. 
which uh, you know, Bud Light has a brewing company here or brewing manufacturing plant here in uh, uh, Columbus, but I guess that makes it local. But I don't drink that that crap. So, anyways, <laughs> more positive <laughs> note besides me being a beer snob. Um, yeah, so we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, we were talking about lots of things. So you've been writing a lot this week. It, recently, you've been writing a lot about China, but also um, the, and we've covered this before, the echo bubble in the real estate market is, 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 is about to burst, is, is our speculation. And, and I think this is important to talk about because a lot of my friends that I work with have just recently bought a house, and they're, of course, assuming that our jobs are safe, that the market is is stable, um, and there's like a lot of things, and there's a lot of people who, as you were saying before before we started the podcast, you know, older generation, the baby boomers, that are thinking that they can sell their house, um, and and you know, some areas that, like you know, certain areas, and I think you know, being in the Midwest. You know, having family in Toledo, Ohio, having family in Youngstown, Ohio, you know, the recession didn't necessarily hit, but it also didn't necessarily leave. You know what I mean? There was really no recovery there. Um, you can go to a nice neighborhood in Youngstown and get a house for like ten thousand dollars. And it's 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 um, it, so I think it's it's I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, I, I feel like in towns like Youngstown and Toledo, you can kind of see what's actually coming before it actually comes. And I don't know if 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 you would agree with that, Charles, or so I guess I'll, I'll let you talk, Charles, because you you know a lot more about this than me. And I think it's it'd be great to hear your your um, perspective on this. Well, actually, Drew, I think that we um, we make a good combination here because you're in the heart of the industrial mid Midwest, which has been, um, you know, bypassed in terms of this current housing bubble, um, which has which has sort of been focused on um, regions that are desirable uh, globally. In other words, like there's been a lot of global capital pouring into like Manhattan. And then now Manhattan's so expensive that it's flowed over into um, into Brooklyn. And so now Brooklyn's got a housing bubble. And, and so, you know, it's spreading throughout New York City. And then in, in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, you know, like it started in, in Silicon Valley, you know, Cupertino and Mountain View and um, and all those communities and then moved up into the, um, peninsula and San, you know, San Francisco. And then now it's spreading to the East Bay where I live. And, and now you can, you can, you can't really afford to rent a, an apartment in Oakland, which, you know, its reputation is, is pretty rough and there are some rough areas, but I mean, you know, 3000 bucks for an apartment in Oakland, you gotta be kidding me. But the, and the houses are, you know, 800,000 and, and up. And so, this is the influence of two things. One is strong job growth and, and jobs that are paying um, uh, enough money to pay these rents, right? Absolutely. And, and um, that includes a lot more than, you know, Silicon Valley. I mean, you got strong growth in, in Portland and, and, and L.A. and I think Minneapolis. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, places that, that are uh, seeing influx of of jobs if they have pharmaceuticals, biotech, technology, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's, um, 
it's also global capital. And, and, and on the uh, left coast here, that's a lot of that comes from China, right? Capital flowing out of China as all the people that um, typically corrupt officials and their cronies, frankly, who have made millions in, in the boom in China are like fleeing. You know, they're getting the heck out of town with their cash and they're buying houses in LA or San Francisco or Vancouver or British Columbia. And so they've, that, that demand, which um, I, I, uh, I've seen a chart recently, it's like $225 billion of Chinese uh, you know, money has flowed into the real estate market in the U.S. That's a, that's a chunk of change. And then we also have to mention Russian oligarchs buying Miami. You know, For whatever reason, the Russians like Miami and um, the Saudi princes. You know, um, I would and the- say it's the naked <laughs> women and lots of <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> and all the other drugs that that city was built on in reality. And I think uh, so that's what I would say, Miami, not to uh, not to <laughs> not to misdirect the misdirect the conversation. But I, I, the vices of the United States, I feel like, are very appealing to a lot of different areas of the country and other parts of the world where you maybe can't do that stuff or it's, it's you know that's what I mean? And and it's warm and very it has beautiful. And it has great uh, air connections uh, to South America, Central America. So, you know, um, yeah, it's desirable. Well, the thing is, is, you know, as we know, oil has fallen from like 100 bucks a barrel to like 45 bucks a barrel. So a lot of that money from oil, uh, Russian oligarchs and, and uh, the Mideast, oh, that's collapsed, right? So... You know that's why, um, and I and I I've been writing a lot about China because I think that China's um, leadership is going to face a very stark uh, choice shortly, which is let their crony buddies escape with all their ill-gotten you know billions of dollars, and and uh, the capital flow out of China is is really significant. I mean, I just read an article: four hundred and fifty billion in the last year. Now, four hundred and fifty billion is like. A ton of money, you know, even for a big country like China, right? Absolutely. Because remember, China's economy is still only two thirds as big as the U.S. Uh, that's you know, dollar for dollar, dollar for you know, yuan. That's the reality. China's economy, ninety percent of the country is really under underdeveloped, you know, and people make like a few thousand bucks a year. And even in the cities, if you're a college grad, you might make five hundred bucks a month. That's six thousand dollars U.S. Okay, that's a that's a middle class job in China. Meanwhile, the apartments are one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand bucks. You know, that's in and not in Be- Beijing and Shanghai. In the desirable cities, they're like the U.S. six hundred thousand U.S. not yuan, U.S. dollars, right? So yeah. they have huge wealth inequality. I mean, staggeringly, it makes us look like uh, you know our wealth inequality is high. You know, uh, by all standards, the U.S. is one of the most um, unequal nations in terms of wealth ownership on the planet, but um, we look democratic compared to the Chinese. So, anyways, I think the Chinese government is going to have to decide they're either going to let all this money out to go buy houses in Vancouver and San Francisco and LA, or, and they're going to get a lot of social unrest because people in China, because of the web, they know all about this. They know that all the people that basically plundered their country have left. And, you know, that, that doesn't make them warm and fuzzy. You know, they don't feel happy about that, especially as they start losing their jobs. Or the Chinese government is going to have to crack down and limit this, which is called capital controls. 
So they're really not going to have a good choice, I think, going forward into like 2016. Yeah, they've really, um, you know, they've built their their bed, and now they got to figure out what they're going to do with it. Um, that's super interesting. Something else I heard you and Gordon talking about too is China's trying to sell U.S. bonds. Is that? Yeah, they're dumping. Well, you know, it's like um, it's a complicated topic, but let's try to just kind of simplify it because it really does um, follow a simple model. Like countries that that um, don't have like global currencies and what we call reserve currencies because and that's pretty much the dollar and the euro and the Japanese yen. And, and what that means is this currency is um, desired pretty much anywhere in the world. Like if you want to and in the U.S. dollar is really premier in this case. In other words, if you have a crumpled $100 bill in Laos or Nigeria, hey, it's it's solid gold. You're gonna, it, it, you'll find people who will take that $100 bill or $20 bill off your hands, no problem. But if you go take like a Chinese, you know, yuan, 100 yuan note, it's like, what's that? <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. Sorry, pal, you know? And so um, – the Chinese currency, to support their currency, the Chinese government has amassed this like huge pile of dollars, roughly about three and a half trillion. Well, it used to be four trillion, but they've burned through like almost 400 billion in the last few months supporting their currency because as people, you know, take their money out of China, that would tend to, you know, push the currency down because nobody, basically they're saying, we don't want you on or you know, renminbi, the official name, RMB. We don't want this stuff. We want dollars. And so that would push the, the Chinese currency down. And then that would sort of upset all the, the whole apple cart that's based on the current valuation of, of the Chinese currency. So the Chinese government's been selling bonds to raise cash to sort of cover all the money that's been fleeing China. That's pretty interesting because I, I think a lot of times I remember – I feel like a lot of people that might not be as like economically um, educated, which I feel like is most people, because I don't, I don't even feel like I am. I feel like I can read some blogs and I have an idea of what's going on, but it's very. Uh, my friend said he had this really good professor in school when he was studying finance, and he said finance is a mind fuck, and he felt like that was <laughs> that was the best way to describe it. And uh, but anyways. You know, a lot of times people would be like, well, China owns this country, blah, blah, blah. But when you explain what it's actually going on, it's like they're really just buying dollars to bail themselves out. That's right. That's right. And and um, like I always say, um, everyone that kind of talks up the China story, like China's going to rule the world and all that stuff. I always ask them, well, then why isn't Warren Buffett putting his kids in China's university and why isn't he putting all of his money in China and all the other American mil uh, billionaires? And then, um, and how come all the Chinese billionaires are and political, you know, elites are moving all their money here and bringing their kids here? You know, like the president of China, his name is Xi, spelled X-I. Um, his daughter goes to Harvard under an assumed name. Interesting. And so and that's typical of the Chinese elite. All their kids are educated in the US. They all own houses here for their kids. They all get their kids green cards. 
so that when the you know what it's the fan in China, the elites have all got it covered. Their kids are going to be safe in Vancouver or New York City or wherever, and um, they got their stash. Well, so it, yeah, there you go. They voted with their feet already. Yeah, and and I've read articles because you've written some really good blog posts about. Um, I thought you were describing the U.S. in one one, and it was. And I think that was your design. You're like, no, I'm talking about China. <laughs> and uh, so one thing, too, that I, I kind of talk about, because um, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but like the Chinese have been buying, like Chinese companies have bought a lot of homes in Detroit, like a lot of housing. Um, and then also, like, they've, I guess they've put a lot of money into Milan, Michigan, which really doesn't have anything but this raceway. But then they bought, like a Chinese company bought Port Toledo as well. And um, do you know the reasoning for why they're they're putting money in the Midwest right now? Is it because um, you know do they think that there there's going to be a resurgence in industry in those areas? Or I guess like that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I think it's um, I mean there's some other things that are going on too that this could just be my speculation. So 75 from like. Finley, Ohio, all the way through Toledo, um, up until the point to where you pretty much get to Michigan, has like just this this uh, uh, highway system that's just there's all there's this mysterious no construction going on, but every, it's like it was started and not finished. I think that's more of a union conspiracy, personally, but not to get too off topic, Charles. But I just started thinking about this stuff, and uh, but I'm wondering, you know, why? I mean that. With industry down, why are they trying to widen the road of seventy of I seventy five, and it and there's just a, like a lot of things that I'm like asking questions to, that I'm like you know Chinese like there's Chinese people putting money in this area, so I wonder what their plans are. Right, and um, I think it's an excellent question, Drew, because it ties into these capital flows we're talking about and um, the future of the. Um, we can call it the global economy, but especially China and the U.S. because the U.S. is the largest economy um, as a single country. The EU is um, a little larger in terms of population and GDP, but you know, uh, in terms of single countries, it's 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 uh, the U.S. and then and then China. And of course, we're intimately tied in a lot of different ways, not just the economy, but in um, in our interests shall we say in 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 asia and the pacific so you know we're rivals in certain ways partners in other ways right so the reason why i think the chinese are are snapping up a lot of property in in the american midwest is number one they realize the chinese currency is going down in value compared to whatever you want to compare it to gold euros dollars whatever right because it's going to weaken because china's economy is fragile and it is weak and it's going to become weaker. So if you can buy something in dollars, then you're going to make like 30% on your money simply because you own something denominated in dollars, like a treasury bond or, or a piece of property. If that thing stays exactly the same value in dollars, but the Chinese currency drops 30%, you just made 30% on your money. And so the Europeans are also, as, as you, you, you know, you've probably seen, I mean, BMW is expanding its plant here in South Carolina, I think. And so, you know, the Europeans aren't dumb either. They've already lost, you know, 25% of the value of their money 
in euros. And so everybody wants to acquire land and assets in, in America because the dollar's rising. And I've, I've talked about this for like four years. And a lot of people were naysayers and said I, I was going to be wrong and, you know, I don't know anything and blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> hey, oh, sorry, I was right. You were wrong. And so and, – and it's because – it's not because um, – it's just because you got to look at the underlying economy because all currencies, you know, they, they act like um, sort of like a reflection of the underlying economy. And so what the U.S. has that China doesn't have is cheap energy. And so that's why the Chinese want to buy, you know, brownfields like old factory land and, and uh, ports and all that kind of stuff here is they recognize, hey, you know what we have in, in the U.S.? If we build a factory in the U.S., we've got access to cheap natural gas to power the plant. And uh, they don't have that in China and they never will. And so that's a huge plus right there. And then they have a smart, educated workforce. Yeah. So you, do you think that factory jobs could potentially come back then i think they will and it's called onshoring you know it went when all the jobs left it was called offshoring and then now they're it's onshoring and actually um i have a couple of correspondents um you know that's one of the benefits and maybe you've started to experience this too as your um podcast and and um and website gets uh, a larger audience is you know, I have like hundreds of correspondents around the world, people who write me every once in a while and tell me what's going on in their corner of the world and, and a lot of correspondents in the U.S. And so thanks to that network, I, I'm, I'm starting to become aware that with um, like uh, the technologies that allow you to download a um, digital plan um, for some manufactured item – into your 3D printer, yeah, printer or fabricator, then um, that opens up a lot of windows. And um, the U.S. also has um, there's a lot of equipment that's still useful, like you know metal lathes and stuff like that. It, it's not like dead. You may think it's dead if you read the newspaper or the you know the the the, uh, the online papers about how the death of American manufacturing. But actually, what it did was it just scaled down, and so there's a lot of small shops that are really quite active. And so maybe what we're going to see in the next decade is not the resurgence of of outfits that hire 10,000 workers like the old days, but a whole bunch of smaller outfits. So guys like microbreweries, yeah. there'd be micro-manufacturing. Precisely. Precisely. And, and that, that um, one of my correspondents was explaining to me that, um, you know, that you use this software to design stuff in 3D, right? Engineering software. And um, the one of the big outfits that makes this stuff, they used to charge like, you know, $3,000 for a license to use their software and 60000 for multiple licenses. Well, now it's like, okay, we have a free version. And then, you know, you can upgrade for 300 bucks. And yeah. so what it, what it means is that anybody that knows how to use this and, you know, any of us can learn to use it, you know, um, on the fly really for small stuff then, you know, they've got this really powerful software that used to only be, you know, in the hands of very large, you know, capital intensive companies. Well, now anybody can buy a 3D printer for like 1500 bucks. And if they have a metal lathe for the parts that, you know, uh, maybe the 
you know, the 3D printers aren't aren't necessarily that great on like hardened steel and stuff. They're okay for plastic parts and things like that. But, you know, there's certain things you still need a metal shop for. So if you have those two things together and this really sophisticated, uh, very powerful software, hey, you can make a lot of stuff. Yeah. So that's that's really exciting. And that's like uh, and I think that's kind of what we, we talk about quite a bit is the importance and kind of resurgence of like the local economy. And I think that's, that's, uh, I think it kind of all ties into the sense of, um, just the direction things are heading. And, and I think it's, and maybe it is like the, the American spirit or something like that, which whatever, whatever that is. But I think there, there is something to the, just the innovation or the, I don't know, there's something about living on this, this geographical body of land. But I, I don't know, maybe it's our culture or something, maybe it's individualism, but, you know, it's like we, just kind of an evolution of it. I don't know, I feel like I just stumbled over words, maybe because I'm drinking my second beer. But I I think, like, I that's really exciting, because I, you know, being in Ohio, my dad is the last my dad retired and it's amazing that he retired and has a pension. Cause I don't feel like, I think maybe two more years people are going to be able to retire, but I, then after that, they're just going to eliminate people's pensions. I feel like, or find a way to buy them out or just screw them over because it's really not in reality. It's, it's, it's just really not sustainable at all. And I think that, um, you know, I, I wonder if a lot of these mergers with companies are going on, because they have pensions that they're they're trying to pretty much get rid of and not have to pay um, for for companies that still have pension plans. These are just things that I think about, which I might just be speculating. But uh, but anyways, back on track, Charles. So like Jeep is moving out of Toledo pretty much by 2018. A lot of it is saying because, you know, with production, they need to keep production at a certain level that it would be actually cheaper to build a brand new plant and then just and rather than to retool this old plant. So do you think that um, I guess what I'm thinking is like, what are we going to do with all these old factories? Are we going to gut them? Are we going to or because, you know, a small level, that's way too big unless they're unless you have one factory and people are renting out different parts of it, which I think could happen, actually, now that I'm thinking out loud. So, I yeah. Because well, there's so many abandoned, there's so many abandoned factories and buildings and stuff like that in Ohio, like Dayton, Toledo, Youngstown, um, all over. So sorry about that, Charles. No, no, I think it's a very good, uh, a very good topic, and let's let's delve into that because I have um, tried to educate myself about it, and um, I just let me mention a couple things we've uh, related to what we've already discussed. One is that the the the, the, the software I'm mentioned is Autodesk and it's called Fusion 360. And so um, that's the software that you can download a free version of that used to cost multi-thousands. So the U.S., as you pointed out, is quite innovative in this in this way. Like um, Autodesk is looking ahead, right? You got to look ahead or you die. I mean, it's like... Yeah. The, the, um, one of the guys that founded um, Intel, Andy Grove, he wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And that's my personal um, uh, credo <laughs> <laughs> is America, the, the greatest benefit 
in America is that there's creative destruction and stuff will change and you can be left behind and um, cry your eyes out or you can jump on it and say, well, this is the way it is that the old days are over. And so all these abandoned factories, let me tell you a little anecdote I know because, um, you know, I have a lot of friends in Asia and I've visited, you know, a lot of countries and I know a little Nihongo like um, Japanese language. I studied it in college and, you know, I'm pretty embedded in, in, in the Pacific Rim, if you will, in, in terms of contacts, friends and, and um, study. And so like in Japanese factories, the temperature in winter is like, I don't know, something like 58 or something. It's freaking cold because, you know, it, it's just like that costs money. Yeah. Look, Japan is a very, uh, you know, energy poor country. It has basically no energy sources and, um, and uh, it's very cold in winter, it, you know, it's, uh, and so, uh, but the U S factories, the union rules kept them heated to a pretty warm, uh, temperature. I forget whether it's 68 or something like that. So there you go. Massive disadvantage already. U S has to heat this drafty, gigantic factory to 68 degrees, let's say it costs $100,000 a day to heat the place. I mean, who knows? 10,000 bucks, a lot of money. The Japanese, it's like, well, the guys wear gloves or something, you know, it's like freaking cold. So the, the, the era of large factories run by, you know, corporations and unions, it's over. It's over, 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 never coming back because it's a model that doesn't work anymore. What works is a couple guys in a garage who can scale up, buy a bunch of really cheap um, parts, including chips, like microprocessors. You know, you get like an Atmel, that's a, that's a company. Um, you get an Atmel controller for like 25 cents or 50 cents or a dollar maybe. And then you put it in your, your drone you're making. And then you sell the drone for like 250 bucks. Um, and a lot of it is parts you made on your 3D printer, you know. Uh, and then you got a you got a viable business, and people go, oh, that's that's no way, you know. No, that is that's real. That's happening right now. Lots of little drone companies, lots of little oil, you know, piping and and parts manufacturers. I mean, this is the this is the industrial foundation of the U.S. now, not companies with twenty five thousand employees and huge factories. So, you're right. Those factories could be repurposed, but they're going to have to be much better insulated. Like they're going to, you're going to have to put a lid on it, a ceiling, you know, and 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 have like little insulated spaces where you can um, heat them cheaply in winter. And, um, and or, maybe they'll just be turned into condos. Yeah, or they'd be torn down. And um, and uh, and uh, so, but I think the future is decentralization and localization, which we've talked about, with global supply chains. And so, um, and 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 I want to reemphasize here, we're talking about a decade. You know, if if people are listening to this and thinking, are you predicting this is going to happen in January of 2016? Hell no. no. It's it's part of it is already in place. But, yeah. uh, but we're talking about um, a trend equivalent to the death of the big industrial factories. That took – that played out from like 1973, the first oil crisis. It took decades for that to play out as companies downsized and U.S. Steel used to have you know, 300,000 employees. I think they're down to like, I don't know, less than 10 because the mini mills 
are able to take recycled steel and generate, you know, steel at a price that's a fraction of what U.S. steel used to used to charge. And so that's the reality. So, but America is adaptable because it does have an educated workforce if people apply themselves. And so I'll, I'll end on one thing that I want you to respond to, which is what I'm fearful of is people have lost the ability to um, adapt and to think of themselves as adaptable and, and as willing to make stuff. And that I, you know, I have some anecdotal evidence that that's what happened in England. It's not that people suddenly got stupid or, or lazy. It's like um, they just lost the zeitgeist of making stuff. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would, I would agree with that. I think it's, it's interesting. I think, um, I think you definitely have to have a desire to do stuff. I think for me, you know, one thing to, to, to kind of like piggyback because I'm not necessarily making stuff. Well, I'm growing stuff and I'm doing well, and stuff. Yeah, and you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, you're yeah. Goods and services. It can be services. Yes. It doesn't have to be goods. Yeah, so I think, you know, one struggle for us right now at the comedy club, and actually it's not really a struggle, um, like it, it, it just worked out. Like it, it was really weird. Like I, uh, when we first met, I was on a, when I first met my friends that are the co-owners, I was unemployed. I was living off my 401k. I hadn't even started the podcast yet, and I was going to, and but I was like kind of being a big pussy. Like I don't want to. I was being a wuss. I don't want to say. I don't want to offend too many feminists, but I don't really care if I do. But like I, I just was being a wuss, man. Like I, I, I was beaten down from my job. Like I, I was working at a place that I thought I was making good money based on what they were telling me and everything else like that. And then when I was going to go work where I work now, I ended up having my offer rescinded. And then I was like, well, what am I going to do? And then it was just kind of like, well, you're going to have to do something, man. You can't keep, you know, not doing anything. So I think for me, the biggest thing was like when I kind of had that oh shit moment and like knowing that I was smart, knowing that I was capable, knowing that I, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, it was kind of like, you know, I didn't have light at the end of the tunnel. And so when you go from job to job with no light at the end of the tunnel and then there's no more job, you're just kind of in darkness. But I think, you know, if people just start doing something that I think like that's the start of anything. And, and you know, and it's and maybe it is manufacturing. Just have hobbies. I feel like hobbies are the gateways to doing anything. Our hobby was going to comedy shows. We thought it was great. We liked we liked this set of comics. We're like, man, nobody likes these comics. This is crazy. There's there's at least people that like these comics from this podcast. Like people that listen to Joe Rogan's podcast like these comedy shows. So let's start connecting with these comics and then eventually let's do shows. So then we started doing shows and then the shows turned into it was mainly my buddy in Toronto and that turned into him you know, having his dream of, of owning a comedy club and just pursuing it. And, you know, we um, luckily we have a great location, but, you know, we didn't use any bank loans at all. And I think that and it was mainly because it takes too long and we're just like we have access to something. Let's do it. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of crazy, too, because that's worked out like I mean, it's it's worked out and it's and, you know, now 
you know, we have our liquor license. We're making money. Joe's doing awesome stuff at uh, the comedy club. And, you know, it's making money. And, and it's still, like, in the early stages of a business. But it's, you know, it's it's we're doing it. And it's, and it's like, this exciting thing. And we're doing it without bank loans or anything. So... Fantastic. Well, and, and, you know, if you, if you're not using crowdsourcing for the, the money, you know, there are a lot of people who, who are using it. And, um, you know, there's this, we've talked about this briefly in the past, but if you're going to you know, like make a documentary or something like that, you can use crowdsourcing, but there's also another level above that of, um, which is starting to grow too, which is kind of like angel investing, they call it. Yeah. That's, that's where people will, um, you know, venture capitalists will, you know, they want to find the next Facebook and dump like 60 million bucks into it. But, you know, this angel investors, it's more like, well, you know, you might raise 100,000 from like people that are ponying up like five grand each or something like that. You know, it's not a huge amount of money. They're not putting their life on the line, but it's it's not like, you know, 20 bucks in, in like a crowdsourcing. Yeah. So there's there's growth in that. And that's another um, you know, and I, I, another advantage of the U.S. and, you know, a lot of people are, um, you know, Drew, I have to say it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people are down on the U.S. because of they hate its foreign policy. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Well, sure. We all hate the foreign policy. And so, but then they let that bleed over and then, then they're looking for something else to beat up the United States on, you know, and, um, or why, why the United States should fail or, you know why it should implode or whatever. And yeah, we do have, um, structural problems, which I write about all the time, but, um, that, that spirit of innovation that you're talking about, that you're living, that's, uh, you can't put a price tag on that because, um, you know, and, and if you're going to rely on the federal government to solve everything, yeah, we're doomed. Okay. We're totally doomed. Okay. You want to rely on GM or or even Google to like save the day, you're doomed. You know, we have to do it ourselves yeah. in, in our local communities. And I, I just want to say, I think you're totally right. What you do is you get out there and you start trying stuff. And if you're realistic and this, and if you don't know this yet, then life will teach you. And that's okay. Cause we all have to learn our own lessons is it takes like, you might have to try nine things before anything starts working. You know, that nine things might just completely flop, you know, like, yeah. and, and, but you put yourself out there and then that's how it works. Yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of money trying to get businesses to work and my, like when I think about it, like I started with network marketing just because it was something that was easy and I, I kind of bought this, this kind of the, just kind of the, the positive thinking that, that they sell you on, um, that I was sold on and I learned a lot from doing it, but I didn't, I didn't make any money, but I learned so much. And then, then I just started focusing on my job. And then, you know, I've been in these processes where like, I'll really focus on like a business thing. It doesn't work out. Then I just focus on myself and then it's like, okay, I'm ready again. I'm ready to to try to put something into the world or feel like I have something to offer to the world bigger than my 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 job, my slave job. So, and I think that's that's a big thing and and you know and and even not like something that you talk about a lot is a good position right now is cash. And I think saving money, people living frugal, I think um not buying into this consumerism crap like i i just think that's that's uh 
that's helped me out a lot. Like, you know, I, I'm in a job to where I hopefully I'll still have my job in the spring. Um, or I might just take a pay cut or something. I don't know. The company I work for is going through a merger and I've been through those before. So I know how those work. And, uh, so, but I already have plans. Like I have, if, if it, if it doesn't go through, I have something to fall back on, whether it be the comedy club or trying to get this food business going or our sneaker business or whatever. Like I'm trying to set up multiple streams of income to really have like, and not even, I don't even need big streams of income. I mean, like, look, if I have a little bit here, 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 and here, that can equal up something for me to live on to make it, you know, and I, and I think that people either think that you, if you're going to do something that you have to be rich and it's like, no, like you just have to do something that would, would substitute the money that you make at your job. So, and then it's like, or the money that you, that you need to live on. So I, I think that's, that's a big thing too. I think frugality and, 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 you know, and, and cash really is just like what you said is a good position to be in for, for multiple reasons. I don't know if you want to cover that at all real quick, Charles. Well, I, um, I drew, I know, um, that you are keeping your lifestyle costs low. You're living in a, you know, uh, low rent, uh, home and, you know, you're growing a lot of your own food and stuff. And so I think that is critical because, um, here's the thing about capitalism, right? And, 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 uh, capitalism gets hammered, uh, for the excesses, um, you know, like, uh, banksters, uh, plundering the system and, you know, all that's true, but, you know, that's kind of at, at the high finance level, at the bottom level of capitalism that we're talking about, um, you know, the individual, the household, the community, then, you, you know, you got to have some capital to go invest. And maybe you need only 1500 bucks to go buy a 3d printer to start playing around with that. As you say, I totally yeah. agree with you. Hobbies are critical. You know, maybe you need like, you know, frankly, to start a garden. I don't know what you spent probably like less than a hundred bucks, right? You don't <laughs> need much. I've spent more on an education and like, I recently just became an affiliate and that's like the first time I've ever tried to monetize anything for my podcast. And now it's like, you know, I should really, I should really like have something to pay for that time. Like, cause now I'm like starting to look at my time differently. Like, you know, I really should put a dollar value with my time or the things that I do. Um, not for everything, but just like, you know, if I, if I'm providing something like, I don't know, I, I just like, I'm, I just started looking at it differently, but you know, this guy, um, and I'm going to give him a shout out just because, you know, he's, he's taught me a lot, but this guy, Curtis Stone, I recently had him on as a guest. He started doing this whole urban farming thing like six years ago before it was even cool. And, uh, he really kind of systemized things and everything else like that. And, you know, it, he started out like he was a tree planter. He's, he's from Kelowna, BC. And he, he literally saved up like $15,000, used 7,000 to invest just in tools and everything else like that. And to get things going. And he ended up making money that year. I think he made, he made his money back plus 10 grand. And now fast forward, he's only selling his food to chefs. He caters his growing to the chefs in the local area. I mean, everything that we talk about, like he's doing, like he's, he's, he's providing, you know, food to, um, you know, for, for local restaurants, 
Um, not only that, it's they're supporting a local grower and they're supporting a local farming. And then, you know, he's he's living he's he's kind of doing this thing by example. And um, so now he's making like over, you know, 100 grand a year on like two thirds of an acre. And it's like you're 80,000 on two thirds of an acre. And it's, you know, now everybody isn't going to make that. And like realistically for me, I think see if you can make you know try to try to pay off your mortgage with it in reality like if you can grow food whether it's a farmer's market or selling microgreens to restaurants or anything like i think growing food is is a, is a good thing not only because you learn skills but then you know if you can if you can do something with that food let alone like even let's just say you grow food and then sell it to your neighbors or give it to your neighbors whatever you want to do whatever but um i think for multiple reasons, and I don't want to get too too off tangent or turn this really too much into a commercial, but he has a course. So if people are interested, like I, he does do this course, and um, you can click on the affiliate link and check it out. But it it takes you through everything you need to do, and that course is like a thousand dollars. So I've I I paid for the course. So the reason why I'm talking about not is not because like I want people to buy it. Like I, I you look if you're interested, I do. I'm trying not to sound sleazy, Charles, and I'm trying to like <laughs> make a point with what I'm saying here. But like I, I've spent more on the education part of it than I have the actual supplies. I mean, like it doesn't cost much. It's sweat equity. But luckily, like I got my uh, my tiller that I really only need to use like once for like 150 bucks for my grandpa. I bought a truck for a thousand dollars from a friend, and I think you know most of the times you can find resources. From the people that you know, and um, and I think that's that's the biggest thing. Like, if people just talk to their friends and family about stuff, maybe you you could all do something together. And maybe not. I mean, that's that's not that. But I guess the point. What I'm saying is, is it's like you know, most of the things that you need are within five miles of where you are, or five people of whoever you know. And that that was something. That's just like something I've learned from becoming good at networking. So. I hope I answered your question, Charles. This beer is kind of kicking in, so. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. Mine is 6.7%, so, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm even more incoherent. No, um, but uh, I think I think that's all good because, um, you know, Drew, a lot of the guys that I talk to in the media, um, they, they are, their job is the media. And so they're often... Um, discussing stuff in in the abstract yeah and so and that's all well and good and there's a place for that but um what excites me is um actually doing stuff you know yeah. in other words like uh, putting the pickaxe into the ground and um and and getting something to grow getting a business to grow advancing your knowledge in a way that you can do stuff that you couldn't do before and that and so you're doing all that and um you know a thousand bucks and 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 i don't know the course and i'm not i'm not recommending anybody do one thing or the other but a thousand dollars in a you know to help you structure a business that maybe if it only makes five thousand bucks well thousand bucks is is capital well spent if you can make five grand off of it you know exactly and so, um and that you know um, a friend of mine uh, a good friend of mine uh is recently is in the process of buying um a farm 
business. And um, it's, it's a farm business that has a lot of um, PR. In other words, people, they have tours where people come to the to place. They have a little store. It's not just a, um, it's not a farm that sells to wholesalers, you know, for s- small money. It's a, it's a farm that's built up a, a, a farm to table, as they call it, business, right? Like Absolutely. to the consumer directly. So, they were losing like 10 grand a month because, you know, it's a big farm and they had a lot of payroll and all that stuff. And you can quickly lose 10 grand if, you know, once you start hiring a bunch of people. And so he, because my friend has operational skills, in other words, um, this is what those of us who've actually run employees and businesses, that's what you acquire is what we call operational skills. In other words, you're able to go in and go, not as an abstract thing, like, oh, isn't, you know, isn't American innovation great? It's not like, no, no, we got to figure out, like, if we got too many people here, we're going to have to lay some off or we're going to have to consolidate the jobs to where these people are going to have to become more productive and get the work done. And we're going to have to organize things to start making money. And so this guy turned this, this business around in like literally six weeks to where it was making like a profit from losing 10 grand. And he just used really basic operational skills. So for those people that don't have any, any awareness of what operational skills are, and believe me, I've lost a lot of money acquiring what I have, <laughs> you know, doing it the hard way is not always the smartest move. Yeah. And, if- yeah. But if once you know those skills, you can apply them to almost any business. Absolutely. And I think too, it's like, uh, there's a lot of, why not spend the money to pay for somebody else's the lessons that they learned from their own mistakes? And, um, and I think like for me with this course, like as, as, as you saw, like we started our, our microgreens, me and my partner, Joel, and you know, we still got to reach out to, you know, this is kind of trial one. I'm waiting on product to come in. Like I did spend, I spent, I spent some money to kind of get us positioned in this business not much like it wasn't much like i've like on actual stuff because these guys they, they were selling this course and they did this webinar and told you where to buy seeds and there's so many damn people in this webinar that everybody bought these damn seeds that they recommended like the five pound bags so i had to buy like the big bags of seeds which were actually like a better deal but anyways um just complaining a little bit but the bottom line is though is that like i can take pictures for this and then I, I post them in this private group and then I have them tell me, yeah, this looks good. This looks that. And then you have a whole community, too. So it's not just it's not just that you're paying like for some shitty course online. Like it's actually interactive. Like you have other people that are built to hold you accountable. It's going to teach you how to do systems. And I think like operational, just like what you're saying, like operational um we were saying, I mean, I mean, just basically, like, you look, like, you have to make things duplicatable. Like, you, you're not going to make money if your business is designed around you being the deal, unless um, there's certain ways you can, like, leveraging the internet and stuff like that. But I think, like, for an actual business, like, if you want to have a business, like, in real life, not just like on the internet, um, you need to be able to duplicate yourself. And I think that's the biggest thing. And I think this course does a great job of it's basically what he's doing. He's trying to duplicate himself and let you in. So, um, and I think that's, that's just anything. Like if you can learn to duplicate yourself or duplicate your efforts, 
then you're then you're set. And I think like and that's I'm not saying it's easy to do because I've been trying to figure that out, Charles. And <laughs> it's um it's been a struggle for me. But I think like a duplication is is everything. And I think I think once once I figure that out, once you know, even with our even with our comedy club, right? Like right now, it's a lot of work. My buddy's there all the time. Like he's there all the time. Like we're helping him out. I'm helping him out, you know, financially. And I'm trying to and I'm doing some stuff with social networking, but like he's doing all the stuff there. He's making sure everything. But eventually we're going to need to not have him be there all the time because, look, he's going to get burned out. And and it's it. And so I guess that's what I'm just trying to say is, you know, when you look to run a business, you should look to to run a business in the sense of of, you know, actually doing business stuff with your farm business. And I know a lot of farmers here even just going like. Because it is getting like this cool thing here in Columbus. And so I'll go on these farm tours and I've talked to people that have worked at these farms and stuff like that. And, you know, and it maybe it's it's not, you know, I see guys struggling and I see people making big mistakes and it's costing them a lot of money. And they're good people, man. They're not bad people. They're they're doing it. But, you know, save yourself some heartache, like save yourself some I guess what I'm saying, that's what I'm trying to say, and I think that's what you're trying to say. I feel like a lot of times people try to do things on too big of a scale right away, especially in farming because you see mega farms and you think you need to farm 60 acres, but in reality you don't. Like You can produce a lot of food in a small area just doing proper techniques. So I'm I'm done talking about that, Charles. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I just want to mention that one thing that you um, have, one of your strengths is marketing and that that is also uh, a critical part of, of um, creating income streams and becoming independent. Um, and I myself, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't aware that I was marketing. It was mostly... <laughs> that I mean, because I didn't have a degree in marketing, I have a degree yeah. in philosophy, right? Yeah. Like totally unrelated. But I was excited about whatever I was doing, and like uh, you know, uh, back in my twenties, it was building houses. So my enthusiasm uh, made uh, made people you know excited about it too, and they trusted me, and they and um, so there you go. And so my point is expertise operational skills, those are, you know, specific expertise in whatever field you're in, important, operational skills, important, and then marketing, important. And, and I'm just saying from my own personal experience, you don't need a marketing degree. You simply need to be enthusiastic about your field and be trustworthy. And people sense that, you know, people's BS detector is extremely sensitive. So if you're going to overpromise and underperform, you know, you're going to fail. So what you want to learn to do, and it's not that hard, is under-promise, over-perform. You say you're going to show up, you show up. You say you're going to bring 20 pounds of X, you bring 25 pounds. You know, it's not that hard. <laughs> but, but, you have to, but you have to perform, and um, that's what worries me, uh, Drew, on a national level, is that if people never learn to work uh, efficiently and and um, motivate themselves, then um, they drop out of the workforce and, um, and everybody's poorer. They're poorer, the community's poorer, and the nation's poorer. Yeah, that's, uh, 
That's something that worries me too. I don't. I don't think it's gonna happen. I think that there's enough people because I don't think most of those. I feel, I, the, okay, so this might sound kind of weird and maybe kind of crappy, but I feel like those people can be influenced another way because I feel like they've already been influenced to a point to kind of buy into a system that's not working. But I don't know. There's lots of programming and schools and stuff like that to make people think that the world is a certain way and sometimes people just don't realize that it's not what it's telling you it is and i think um so i don't know i i you know it's it's a tricky thing i i don't know what makes um me different than other people i know that i'm gonna try to help all my friends and family all my loved ones like that's that's my plan i mean like i'd like to be able to have businesses where I could give people good jobs or give them or even say, hey, let's do this together and we'll have equity in this. This is your dream. I can help guide you to your dream. And I mean, that's that's kind of what we did with the comedy club. Like I I I never thought I'd be a part owner in a comedy club. I, I thought comedy, but my buddy was all about it. And I was like, yeah, he had enough enthusiasm. I'm like, yeah, I'm in, man. Let's do it. And I think, and I think that's kind of it. Like, there's a really good book, um, "How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling," by Frank Betker. It's written in like the early 1900s, and he was originally a baseball player. When baseball players didn't make dirt, and he stunk at baseball professionally. <laughs> like he wasn't doing well. He was getting cut, and he was like, "Why?" And he's like, "Honestly, man, you're lazy." So then Frank just started hustling. And then he started becoming a starter and then became like one of the best baseball players. And he, he had an injury and then he was in insurance and he sucked at insurance. And he's like, what am I doing wrong? And they're like, honestly, man, when you talk to your customers, I don't, that doesn't sound like you care. So then he just started being really enthusiastic and then he became one of the top insurance salespeople. So I think, you know, enthusiasm can take you really far. And I think, like, even if you don't know what you're doing 100%, because nobody does. Like, it's everybody's still trying to figure stuff out. Just do something. Be enthusiastic about it. And you'll be surprised what happens. Look, you might not make much money, but guess what? You might build some great relationships with people that are going to help you in the future. I mean, like, I think that's that's the biggest thing. I think, like, you know, like the podcast, perfect example. Like, that's that's what I started to do. I haven't really made a dime off my podcast. I've I've made broke even because my friend pays me to edit his podcast and um it's not i mean he's pretty generous with it but in reality i feel like my time's worth a little bit more like not to sound like a jerk but you know i i appreciate him and i want him to succeed so i don't mind i would probably do it for free but he likes to just give me money because he really appreciates it um because he's a good friend of mine and um and and, and I guess what I'm trying to say with this podcast is, is that, you know, maybe it's only broke even, but what, I, what I've learned from doing the podcast, our relationship or the relationships I made with, you know, people that read your blog, like, uh, like Marvin or even um, Aaron um, YR, who used to write for Peak Prosperity too. Um, mm-hmm. He's going to do the podcast too, Charles. I'm excited about that. And uh, Excellent. Yeah, and I think and I think like that's just um I think that to me that you can't put a you can't put a dollar on that. Like I think your quality of life is going to become so much better because you're enjoying you're doing things that you want to do. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's just 
do things that you want to do and and you know and you'll be surprised what happens you'll be surprised where it leads you you'll meet people that are interested in similar things that you are so then naturally you're like god let's i did something different that i'm not used to maybe i should keep doing something different and in a positive way i'm not saying go do lots of drugs i'm saying like go do something different like look you never thought you could do be in a business try to do a business and look you might not be good at it but you'll learn to be good at it force yourself to become good at it so you know I, there's plenty of books out there there's plenty of information out here we talk about youtube university like look you can get lots of stuff for free and there's stuff that you should probably pay people for so i think um i guess i'm, I'm off my soapbox there man <laughs> <laughs> well i'll add two final comments one is you know sometimes it takes years for something to grow um like, you know, maybe you start baking stuff at home and then, you know, your friends really like it. And then they tell you, why don't you sell it at the farmer's market and you make a few bucks. And then, you know, it might take like three or four years of before, you know, you start making, you know, a few thousand bucks off of it. But that um, if you're enjoying the process, then it, it's not it's not painful, you know. Yeah. You're getting something out of it. And then the other thing I wanted to mention just listening to you was the importance in, and you're doing it. And I, uh, uh, well, Drew, I just wanted to say that you want to um, keep control of, of, of your life and, and your work. And um, that's what you're doing. And uh, that's hard to value, but it's, it's sort of priceless. Yeah, I would say so. Like it's, it's easier to look myself in the mirror because I know when I, wasn't enjoying what I was doing like I I don't ever want to go down that path like I don't ever want to to put on a bunch of weight and um just be depressed and not feel the self-worth that I know I deserve and and I think you know if if you are listening to this and you're in, a, in that position I think you should know that number one look yourself in the mirror more that's something my grandpa always told me all that matters is what the guy looking in the mirror thinks of you and uh and i forgot that for a while and then i remembered it and and i think you know you can do whatever you want to do i mean just do it you might not be the best at it but who cares like start doing it you might not make money at it but who cares do it because you have this thing in your brain that's saying do this do it like your spirit is moving you to do it like not to be like spiritual or anything so I think I think that's that's it. Like I think people need to just go do some shit, man. <laughs> well, let's end on that positive yeah. note because I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. Charles, thank you again. Everybody, go to ofTwoMinds.com. Subscribe to his blog. Um, definitely check him out. Uh, also, go to Amazon.com if you are a Prime member. You can actually read a lot of Charles's books for free through the Kindle Unlimited program. So definitely read his books. Also, if you don't like Kindle, buy his books. They're all on Amazon. Just Google, just Google search Amazon search Charles Hugh Smith, and you'll find his books. Check them out. His most recent book is Get a Job, Build a Real, Real Career, Defy a Bewildering Economy, and it actually talks about pretty much a lot of stuff that we're already talking about here. Um, so definitely read that book. Um, and follow him on Twitter. He's at ch smith and smith the i is a one anyways guys thank you so much please rate review and subscribe for the sample hour and we will talk to you again soon